0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. We're going to begin in verse number 25 and read through the end of that chapter. And then we're going to have a pretty, I wouldn't say fun conversation, but uh, an important conversation that I think will be very beneficial for us today. Uh, Ephesians 4, begin in verse number 25. Um, we'll also be turning to Genesis later on in our message, Genesis 42. If you want to put a bookmark there, not that hard to find being at the front of the Bible, but we'll be turning to, that, uh, to Genesis 42 later on in the message. So a lot to cover this morning, a very important conversation, beginning with Ephesians 4, verse 25. It says, therefore, putting away lying, let each of one, each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who's still, uh, soul still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So I want to ask you a question um, that might be the craziest thing you've ever been asked in church, but I like to give you something to talk about over lunch. Um so uh that's sometimes that's why I do what I do to begin these messages. So the question is what makes you angry? Makes you angry. Hopefully your response isn't what doesn't make me angry. Maybe that's what you say about your other half, right? Uh better half or maybe in that case not better half. Uh for real, for real though, we we all have a line, we all have a point of no return, you know, and you'll notice this in this introduction, um, there's so many metaphors for getting angry, you know, going over the line, setting me off, triggering it, because we all get so angry that we've got so many ways of talking about our anger. So that should tell us that maybe we've got a little bit of a problem. But... But um, uh, we, we've all got a line, we've all got a point of no return. Some people love to let you know where their line is, um, almost like they just dare you to get close or to get them close so they can unleash the dragon or the beast or whatever you want to, uh, whatever image you want to get there. Um, but but, but it, it, this isn't about some people, this is, this is about you. So before you think about, well, I'll tell you what makes him angry or her angry, let's not think about him or her right now, let's think about you, Right? Uh, I really think, you can think about me if you want to but let's think about us what makes you angry it may seem like anger is something that flares up out of nowhere in an emotional outburst that we can't control that we never can detect ahead of time as in we just never expected to get angry yeah in reality I think it's actually pretty predictable for most of us. When our heart heads are cool, when our, when our minds are calm, it's not that hard for us to articulate what takes, over, what takes us over the edge, what makes us angry. Now, while some people may talk a little much about what makes them angry, a little too casual with about what you know, ticks them off, a lot of us, most of us, we like to pretend like we never get angry. And I think the average person, most of us, we downplay that we have tempers, even though we all have a temper. Now, some of you, some of us have short fuses, some of us have pretty long fuses, but we all have a tipping point. Everybody has a boiling point. It's just the reality. I do think, however, there is one particular trigger that all of us share. So the answer to what makes you angry, your, your answer may be all over the place. You might get upset about politics. You might get upset about, you know, somebody throwing shade at your favorite sports team. You might get upset about somebody having a certain behavior quirk that they don't manage or they don't, you know, you know, conceal very well. Um, you know, certain attitudes might get under your skin. Certain responses to questions might aggravate you. Uh, we've all got these little things, um, these little things that annoy us, that don't sit well with us. We, we, we all, you know, manage our reactions to these annoyances in various ways. Sometimes we show our anger, sometimes we conceal our anger, you know, we're passive about it, but we all have these little things that set us off here and there. But I think there's one area that we can agree creates a more serious kind of anger deep down inside of us that's just not a passing feeling or emotion, uh, to put it that way. But but while the answer to what makes you angry may be fairly unique, the answer to what makes us all angry is I think, I think it's fairly obvious. What makes all of us angry? What, what brings about anger in every one of us? And I'm talking about real anger. I mean anger that just fires you up and, and doesn't leave anytime soon. What makes all of us angry? Or what's something that makes all of us angry? I think you'll agree. When someone does us wrong, or when someone wrongs those that we deeply love and care for, would you agree that that, that makes you angry? That makes us angry? That when someone does something wrong to us, and I don't just mean they cut you off in the parking lot, though that makes you angry too, I know. I'm talking about when somebody really does something that's a great offense to you, they they harm you in a certain way, they take something from you that was valuable, they do something that's just not right, and there's just no excuse for it, and there's laws against it, and there's verses against it. When someone does something wrong to you, it hurts you, but more importantly, it makes you angry. And, And even more, when someone does something wrong to someone that you love, Especially your kids or your grandkids or someone that you that means the world to you, when someone does something wrong to you or someone does something wrong to someone that you love and you care for, that makes you, that makes us angry. Of course, this can cause all sorts of emotions. I think I think under all of them and fueling them is this, is this anger that we feel when people are done wrong or we are done wrong. And now after the initial emotion of hurt or pain wears off, there's this steady sense of anger that wells up and often sets up camp in our hearts. Now, when someone does us wrong, when someone that means a lot to us is wrong, we can't help it. And wouldn't you agree that this is a different kind of anger? This isn't the anger that you get when somebody you know, uh, pulls out in front of you or the anger whenever somebody you know, says something offhanded to you or when somebody you know, says something that you just don't agree with. This is a, this is a different kind of anger. And, and you would say, I would say, this is a good kind of anger. Right? Th- this is a kind of anger that we would say is genuine and legitimate, even righteous anger. And, and I think the word for that is indignation. That's a fun word if you don't use it that often. Maybe you can start saying, I'm not angry, I'm indignant. And, and people have to take you serious when you say that. Uh, you tell somebody that you're angry, they might think, well, they'll get over it. You tell somebody that you're full of indignation, righteous indignation, and they're gonna have to, they'll stop and think, well, this person, this person might actually be, be serious about whatever uh, is upsetting them. But, but for real, indignation, the word, it, it, it means anger provoked by unfair unjust treatment. You know what this is. You know what this is like to be on the receiving end of, don't you? You've been treated unfairly before. You've been treated unjustly before. You've been wronged in some way that there's just no excuse. There's no way to to, to chalk it up as okay or tolerable or passing the, the, the test. It's just obvious. It's unjust. It's unfair. It's wrong. You've been hurt before and you've been angry as a result. You've been indignant, haven't you? You've been indignant over yourself. You've been indignant on behalf of someone that you love. Now, when, we, when we're when we otherwise minding our own business, doing the best that we can, someone treats us unfairly, unjustly, and that lights a fire within us that is different than just getting upset over something, over how someone voted or how someone uh, threw shade at something that you liked or how someone did something in a way that, was, uh, that you disagreed with. This is different. You, you, you know we can, and, and we can criticize somebody's anger for being unfounded or extreme, but it's kind of hard to push back back against indignation isn't it it's kind of hard to walk up to somebody who is hurt from something unjust and unfair and they're full of this righteous anger it's hard to walk up to them and say you should get over it because we even understand what they're going through We, we we agree that they should be and have a reason to be angry who am I? Who are you? Who are we to say to someone who's been wronged or has you know, watched somebody suffer through something that was done wrong to them? Who are we to say your anger's out of place? Really, it's uncalled for. You, we would never do that. Or, or we, I, I, I wouldn't do that. We've all been that person who's been wrong. We've been alongside someone who was wronged and we can relate and understand the hurt and the feeling that they have and the anger they must be dealing with because we ourselves have felt that kind of anger, haven't we? Maybe you've got this kind of anger that, that lingers. It comes and goes, it, it flares up and it dies down, but it's always there. It, re, it rests underneath your consciousness. Maybe the reason you lose control of your emotions from time to time for seemingly no reason is actually because some righteous indignation that you've, been able, you've not been able to let go of, that you just can't let go of, that you just don't even see how anyone could let go of, and who can blame you? Anyone who would try to, would really come across insensitive to your legitimate, lasting pain. So I don't know what, it, what all makes you angry, but I think we can agree that all of us have experienced this kind of anger, haven't we? Now, we may have some silly, petty things that make us angry, but no one can argue with this kind of anger a few thousand years ago or over the last few thousand years, um, philosophers of, of all kinds have debated something um, called just war or about the idea of just war. And the, and the de- debate is, is war ever justified? Is there ever a case where war and all that it leads to, the, the deaths, the, 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 the byproducts of, of, the, of the war, the people who are gonna suffer by, by, you know, by, by association, uh, not even asking for it, um, throughout the last thousands of years there's been this debate in the philosophy schools and the philosophy circles these people who just get paid to think and 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 write and, and write and help influence our cultures philosophers have debated for years is there a war that is justified unquestionably and is almost necessary I think I think that we could call indignation just anger justified anger I think if there's any kind of anger that is that is understandable and that is that is excusable it's indignation because if there's any anger that's justified if there's anger that's necessary I mean it's this kind of anger but but here's here's the messy thing about justifying any kind of anger so we've, we've you know I've kind of built things up a little bit maybe you felt like I didn't expect him to say that now we're gonna have a serious conversation Here's the messy thing about any kind of anger. No matter how justified it is, no matter how reasonable it is, how righteous it appears to be, it's kind of the same thing when you justify any kind of war. And this isn't about war, but, but any kind of war, there's gonna be some consequences that you just didn't intend. And that's just part of justifying it, right? That's just part of approving it. But, but again, we're not fighting a war. We're not, running the, we're not fighting for the control of the world here. We're just talking about our own hearts. So I got to ask you a question. What's the end game of your anger? You ever think about that? Like, what, where is this anger taking me? What is the long-term goal of this indignation? Now, if, if we've got to harbor this anger because we've been done wrong, if everybody would say to us, I understand, you should be angry, no one should ever take that away from you or should tell you that you shouldn't be. If we've got to harbor this anger and we've been unjustly treated, by all means, if we've been justifiable, uh, if we have a, have a justifiable reason as to why we should be angry, it still begs the question, what's the end game of that anger? Like, where do you see that anger going with you? Where do you see that anger taking you? And maybe you don't think about it. Maybe you should think about it. What is the long-term goal of holding on to that anger? I don't, I'm not saying that, it's the, that you're, not, you're not legitimate and justified and, and you're not, you know, it's not reasonable. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be angry. I just want you to ask the question or think about the question, where's this anger taking me? Maybe you don't care. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you should. Like, wh- where's this anger taking me in the next year, five years down the road? What are we going to do with this anger that's going to help us arrive at a better place? Because by all means, if you're angry and if you feel like you've got to be angry, certainly it's because you think it's going to pay off someday, right? If you know anything about anger, anger can be, anger can be a little bit belligerent, as in stubborn. And we're already stubborn, but when we're angry, we're more stubborn, Right? It digs its heels in, it crosses his arm, and it refuses to budge. And if it's indignation, by all means, I I can't blame you for being belligerent and stubborn about your anger. But surely if anger is gonna be stubborn, it must have a long-term plan and ability to take us to a better place. Surely if anger is justified and you have every right to be angry and reason to be angry and never let go of that anger, surely it's gonna take you to a better place one day, right? But here's the thing about anger, even the most justified kind of anger, it's just like war. Yeah, we can go and make make them pay for what they did to us, and in many cases, it's the only thing that might prevent worse from happening on the world scale, but nobody would ever argue that doing harm to them is going to make the harm done to us any easier to deal with. Isn't it true? That if your long-term goal with anger is getting even, if your long-term goal of anger is finally getting, get, you know, making them get theirs, if that's your goal for anger, and I don't know if it is or not, but if that's what you think anger is going to is gonna lead to one day, I mean, is that really worth it? I mean, is, that, is doing something to them going to make what they did to you any better? I think we know the answer to that. It's like the old saying goes, two wrongs don't make a right. Now, I'm not saying that your anger is wrong. I'm just asking you, what does it really accomplish? And if you haven't ever thought about this, maybe you should. Is it going to take you to a better place when it's all said and done? And if you're somebody who's been angry or are close to someone who's been angry, you know the answer to that question. Where does anger take us the longer we have it? the longer we deal with it the longer we excuse it what does anger do for you in the long run you know what it does i know what it does we all know what it does it enslaves us it suffocates us doesn't it that's not fair that's unfortunate you did something to me or i did something to you and i'm angry about it you're angry about it and all that ever gets me is a worse place why does the world have to work like that? So while it's true, anger and indignation can definitely be justified and be warranted. It's also true at the same time, anger is self-defeating. And, and, and again, I know this might hit some people in a very sensitive place. And you know, thankfully there's a little bit of distance between us. I'm not saying your anger isn't justified and your anger isn't warranted. And you can be angry until you die if you want to. That's your Right? but I want us to at least acknowledge that that anger isn't doing us any good, is it? It's self-defeating. As great as we could defend our anger and as pitiful as our stories are, as as tragic as our stories are, as wrong as that person is and as, as inexcusable as what they did to us is, that anger in our hearts that we think we are justified with it never, ever takes us to a better place. And if that's okay, if you're okay with that, then hey. But maybe it's good to look in the mirror and see that back at you. There's really nothing that's ever going to satisfy anger in terms of paying off whatever, deter- whatever someone did to us. I, I tell you, I had to put together such a convincing argument about why anger is practically a good thing. I really didn't want to bring up these truths because now I just feel confused. Because I wanna, I wanna be angry sometimes and I've got some good reasons as to why I should be angry but I know too much about the end game of anger to let myself go. No matter how justified our anger is, it doesn't change the fact that anger will never be fully and finally satisfied. Both things can be true, right? Your anger is completely justified but your anger Never be fully satisfied. We've all uh, come across those contests or sweepstakes before where somebody, um, where there's a promise made, and and we think this has got to be too good to be true. There's no way that this prize is actually going to come no strings attached. Uh, There's no way that this is going to happen like it says it's going to happen. We look for the back of it, we look for the fine print, and we try to find what what it really says. Anger will pull the wool over our eyes in a heartbeat, deceiving us that it's the only right response, making it impossible to imagine any other path forward. But there's always a catch with anger, isn't there? There's always a catch even with indignation, even with defensible anger, even with anger that people understand. Anger comes with a catch because it's got a much tighter grip on us than we could ever have on it. Angry people don't have control of their anger. Anger has control of them. And and, and you you may think, well, that's not my anger, Justin. Justin. I mean, I've got some anger that I have to deal with, but it's their fault. It's their fault and I can't help it. That anger has control of you. It does, it does. It's had control of me. It's had control of all of us at some points in our life. It's for this reason the Bible has a lot to say about anger. Even indignation even anger that is justified even anger that comes from people doing things to us that the bible says is wrong the bible still says to you and me who are angry that we've got to do something with it Do, do you know do you do you know what makes christianity truly unique and stand out above all other philosophies all other all other religions Do you know the one thing that makes Christianity different than any other religion, any other faith, any other philosophy that people live by, ideology? You know what what makes it different? Jesus himself said, by this, all people will know that you are mine if you, y'all can fill in the blank." Love, or as it says, have love, next slide, if you have love for one another. So what makes Christians different? Not how angry they are and how justified they are in their anger, the opposite. What makes us different? What makes us stand out? What makes us remarkable? That we have love for one another what makes Christianity so remarkable isn't how we love those who love us or how easy it is to love people. Jesus says what's going to make y'all stand out is how radical, extraordinary, above and beyond your love is. Jesus said this in Matthew 4, 5. You've heard it said of old, you shall love your neighbor, and it's okay to hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Jesus I don't love my enemies. I'm angry at them. You know why I'm angry at them? They broke your law and did something to me and it hurt me and I'm angry at them for being against you and against me. It's okay for me to be angry and Jesus says you can say all that. All you can say that all you want. It's not okay. Love your enemies. Well, if I love my enemy, I'm going to have to do something else to my enemy in order to love them. He says you're almost there. He goes on. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So what makes us children of God? How we love those who are unlovable. Not how you love your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister that's easy to love. How you love that person that you would say is the most difficult person to love. The person that you are the most angry at. Jesus says that's what's going to make you a child of God. Because your Heavenly Father, He doesn't withhold the Son from those that do evil? If you think that he does, then you don't know who God is. God does not withhold the rain just because someone's unjust. God makes the sun rise and the sun set and the rains fall on everyone. He goes on. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collector do the same. So we're no different than the world if we just love those that's easy to love. Jesus says what makes you extraordinary, what makes you remarkable, is if you love those that other people would say you should never love them. So So this is Jesus acknowledging what we already are thinking. Some people are hard to love. Some people don't deserve my love. Again, some anger is petty. Some anger... It's childish, but most anger is pretty well-founded. Case in point, the indignation that we all know and that we all have felt, and come on, we didn't ask to feel this way. It's their fault, God. I didn't want to be angry. I didn't wake up one day and say, I hope someone hurts me today, no. It's their fault that I'm angry, but the Bible doesn't let us off the hook because remember, to be on anger's hook is much more taxing than you may realize. So that's why there's a command that goes hand in hand with love in the New Testament. And it's forgiveness, unconditional, without exceptions. We are commanded to forgive everyone of every offense done against us or done against those that we love. That anger that you feel, no matter how hard this may be to talk about, no matter how unfair, how unjust the whole situation is, God's word to you is that you must, you must let it go. If we were to put this in terms of debt and debtor, when someone hurts you, they become your debtor because they owe you something or they took something from you. The anger you feel is reflective of the debt they owe you. But if I may, they can never pay you back what they did. They can never make, do, make you do something to you that makes you feel better about what they took from you. They just can't. They can never go back and make that not happen. Even an apology won't undo what they did to you or your loved ones. And I'm not saying what they did wasn't atrocious. It probably was. As hard as this is to hear... The Bible's resolution for your anger and the debt you hold over whomever you're angry at, it may not even be a person. I mean, we live in a world, we live in a world, in a country that is so angry. We're not just angry at our neighbors, we're angry at whole groups of people because we blame whole groups of people for messing things up. We're not just, cable news operates in YouTube channels and all this stuff in today's world. It operates on the basis of stoking your anger. It's those people's fault. It's that group's fault. And you get angry because yeah, they did something. They did something to my world that I'm not happy with. They took something from me that I can't get. It's all based on anger. That's what fuels the economy in so many categories. But most likely you're angry at an individual or a person that hurts you who took something or hurt something, hurt someone that you love or hurt you. And the Bible's proposal, the Bible's command to you and to me is cancel The debt. He said, Justin, I don't like that solution. That's what the Bible gives you. Forgive them completely. Love them wholeheartedly. Cancel the debt. I promise you, you're not going to like what happens to you if you continue to hold them in debt. You're not going to like it. It's going to make you a worse person. It's going to make everybody around you a worse... It's going to make the whole situation worse. You've got to cancel the debt. If you want to get to a better place, of course you do. Forgive them and love them. You wonder why this passage in Ephesians starts out by saying, put away lying, because the one thing that betrays your Christian faith more than anything is being unforgiving and unloving. You hear that? You know what the greatest lie a Christian can tell? Is to not love somebody. Because your namesake reflects the greatest love story ever told. Your namesake reflects forgiveness. And for you to not forgive someone, you are lying to them if you say you're a Christian. I'm lying to you if I say I'm a Christian, yet I can't forgive you and I can't love you. I am betraying my identity. Verse 26 acknowledges that anger can be natural and normal and justified, but it also makes it clear that holding on to anger can be a sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So he explains, hey, it's okay to be angry. Just don't let it become a sin. And then he explains, how do you prevent anger from being sinful? Don't let the day end without canceling the debt. Whoa, 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 Justin. I need more than a day to process what I went through. I understand. I get it. It's taken me weeks sometimes, months, years. I get it. Paul's just going to let you know that the every day that goes by that you don't cancel that debt, you are giving the devil a foothold in your life. Again, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I, I didn't ask for this. Paul's just saying, I just want you to know how this works. Every day that you don't cancel the debt, you're justified for being angry, but you are giving into sin and you're giving in to the devil if you let a day go by. Say well, Justin. What happens if it's not a day, but a year, or two years, or ten years? Then, then that footprint of the devil in your life is pretty big, isn't it? If you want to know, if you want to know why, verse twenty-five and twenty-eight bookend this like they do it's again verse 28 talks about stealing no longer if you're a christian you have a new nature you don't lie anymore you shouldn't steal anymore if you've once stole so the the message here the message here is that a christian no longer holds grudges or stays angry because at the core of the christian faith is the notion of is the principle of forgiveness and unconditional love what makes you a christian what's the nature of a christian you've been loved by god unconditionally you've been forgiven totally Are you angry? God understands that you're angry. It's okay that you got angry. It's not okay that you stay angry. It's not. So that's why this passage, among others, wastes no time and pays no attention to our rebuttals. Anger and anything that causes it in us bad thoughts, bad words, bad behavior it all has to go. I, I want to stop and acknowledge this as we wrap up. I know this isn't easy. I mean, you can say that again, Justin. I know this isn't easy. The Bible never portrays it as easy. But, but I, wanna, I wanna tell you a story that the Bible, tells, the Bible tells a story about a person that navigated and wrestled the emotion of anger in a way that is truly remarkable. And his perspective and reason for choosing forgiveness in the end is so humbling. So y'all know the story of Joseph. Joseph, the coat of many colors. Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. Y'all know that story. So Joseph... Was the chosen child? He was the one who made more than his brothers, even though he was not—he was the youngest. He was the one that had the job of superintendent while they all were shepherding up and down the mountains of Judea. Joseph was very spoiled, very pampered. He got special treatment from his dad. He was uh, basically—he loved being a tattletale when his brothers were slacking off. He loved to tell his dad that they weren't doing the right job right. Joseph was the typical spoiled little brother. To make matters worse, Joseph starts having these dreams that he's gonna uh, supposedly they're from God that he's gonna rule the land one day that his brothers even his dad's gonna bow at his throne and then he starts telling his dreams to his brothers and he knows it makes them mad and he kind of likes it cuz he's kind of he's kind of you know he's that young kind of spoiled kind of mischievous little kid. I mean he's a good kid but he's just kind of not grown up yet. He's a little bit immature. And he tells his brothers, "Yeah, I'm gonna be the king one day. Y'all gonna bow at my throne." What do you think about that, guys? And they hated him. They hated his guts. They wanted they wanted to get rid of him. So one day, the older brothers go out to check on the flocks all around Judea, and then their dad sends Joseph to check on them, like he always did. So Joseph goes and tracks them down, but they realize that he's tracking them, so they set a trap. They beat him up, throw him into an abandoned well, a dried-up well, with the intent of either leaving him, uh, letting him starve, or uh, or or killing him and just putting him out of his out of his misery. They trap him, they beat him, uh, and again, there he is left left to die but then they have a small change of heart judah the 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 leader of the clan says guys why would why should we kill him when we could sell him great merciful judah so judah sees some merchants coming down the road slave merchants they're on the way to egypt they sell joseph to them they make some money off of him. they lie and tell their dad that he got killed by a wild beast they tear his garment up and they show it to his dad his dad's heartbroken meanwhile joseph's getting carted down to egypt never to be seen again so y'all know the, the, how the story goes. He gets sold to Potiphar, one of the captains of Pharaoh's guards. Potiphar's wife lures him, or, or lures him and tries to have an affair with him. Joseph says, no, I can't sin against God. Uh, Potiphar's wife gets offended. She lies and says Joseph made a move on her. Potiphar has a hissy fit and throws him in prison. Claims that he did something against the king and against the king's right hand man. Joseph's thrown in prison, and for 13 years he rots away in a capital prison, in a dungeon. Can you even imagine the pain, the betrayal, and the anger he must have felt? We can't even imagine, can we? meanwhile his older brothers they're back home living their lives Joseph, jacob is in mourning and then those 13 years uh over those 13 years some wild events take place in egypt which was at the time the richest prosperous nation on the planet pharaoh starts having the king of egypt starts having these uh dreadful dreams per- foreshadowing an ominous future one of his royal aides that had been placed in timeout for a little while which timeout in those days was you were put in prison. Uh, One of the royal aides, a butler, made Pharaoh mad. He went to jail for a little while. He gets brought back out of jail because Pharaoh has a change of heart. He needs someone to be his butler and he can't find a better one. So the butler comes back and Pharaoh is distressed by these dreams and and the butler says, hey, I met a guy in prison that could interpret dreams. And he even told me that I was going to get out of prison. Here I am. And Pharaoh hears him tell these stories and he's thinking, well, I'm desperate Bring this guy in. So Joseph brings brought before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he warns them. He warns Pharaoh that, hey, this is bad. There's a famine coming over the whole earth, but we're in an opportune position. We've got a surplus, and we've got a few more years before it gets bad, so you can actually stockpile grain, and not only will we have enough in Egypt, but you'll have enough to sell to the rest of the world and make money during this depression. Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph's uh, ideas, he puts him in charge. He puts him on the cabinet to plan this whole agenda. And eventually Joseph does such a brilliant job organizing and essentially saving the nation. Pharaoh makes him his right-hand man, his governor. And basically Pharaoh just retires. He's like, you're such a good leader. I can just go and retire and live my days out. You run the place. So while Egypt was uh, with a stockpile of grain, uh, the rest of the Middle East came to buy from Egypt, and since Joseph was from that region and can speak that language, he was the ideal guy to run the the, the, the diplom- to be the diplomat that kind of negotiated with all the traveling people that came from Babylon and came from the land of Canaan and everywhere in between. So Joseph is is essentially ruling the land in this depression. And as fate would have it, guess who comes looking to buy food? His brothers. Genesis 42, if you want to turn there. So the story goes that Jacob asked his sons to go and down to Egypt and buy grain. Picking up in verse 3, it says, Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, and Jacob did not send Joseph's little brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, and he said, lest some calamity befall him. So they're trying to take care of the little brother. Uh, and the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land and it was he who was sold to, people, who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And, they said to him, and then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, we come from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And can you just hear the music swelling up? If there's ever been a better, more God-given opportunity to get even in revenge, it's this one. And Joseph considers it. He talks roughly to them. He makes them feel as if they're, they're, they're committing some crime. He puts them in custody for three days. And he's laying in bed one night. And he says, I can't do this. I want to. I want to make them feel like I felt. I I want to to ruin their life like they ruined mine. I want to make them hurt like I've hurt all these years. But he just couldn't do it. He brings them back before him, he sells them grain, he sends them their way, and they leave in complete disarray because they don't understand what his deal is and why he locked him up and let them go and sold them grain. And they're thinking to themselves, and, and you read the whole story, they even say, God must be punishing us all these years later for what we did to our brother. They're completely nervous and completely shot. Meanwhile, they get home and they unpack their grain and they realize he gave them double what they paid for and he stowed away their gold back in their luggage. And they are completely, they're thinking, oh my God, the Egyptian guards are gonna be at our back door in a minute and he he set us up. Should their fathers just go back and make it right? Should they go all the way back to Egypt? And, And they're thinking, what the heck is going on? They go back, and Joseph, uh, you know, again, worried that he's trying to set them up, but he insists it's all of good faith. He actually invites them to a big banquet, and they're sitting in the banquet hall. Again, read the whole story. It's remarkable. They're sitting in the banquet hall, and he just gives them so much food, and there's a big party, and Pharaoh's there, and there's music, and everybody's happy, and they're thinking, what is going to happen next? We are going to die. And if you read the whole story, Joseph, there's these moments in the story where Joseph just gets so emotional, he has to leave the room. Because if you've ever been angry and you've ever been hurt, you know that sometimes you just can't control your emotions, right? And Joseph is trying to do the right thing, he's trying to overcome his anger with doing these good things, but at the, if you read the whole story, at, there's times where he walks out of the room and he just weeps, he bawls like a baby because he doesn't know if he really wants to let him off the hook. he wants to make him hurt. But it says that he shaved his face, he cleaned his face, washed his face, came back in and he tried to act as if nothing was wrong. And they're thinking, what is wrong with this guy? Over in Genesis 45, we'll finish the story. Finally, Joseph decides it's time to tell his brothers who he really is and quit playing these games. It says, then Joseph could not restrain himself any longer before all of those who stood by him. He cried out, make everyone leave the room. And no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. But before he could do it, he wept aloud and everyone heard it. I mean, if you want to think, you know, the Bible's a fairy tale. All this is always happening so perfectly. This is not one of those stories. This is a raw story of a real guy who was trying to wrestle through his emotions and he had been angry for so long. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? You can just tell he's a mess because he goes from saying, I'm Joseph. Hey, how's dad? But his, brothers, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. I bet they were. I bet they were expecting the worst, right? And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they're thinking, no, we don't wanna come near you. But they do. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. So here's what what Joseph had come to the conclusion. That yeah, it wasn't fair and yeah, it wasn't right and yeah, he didn't like all this and yeah, he was angry and he had all these emotions, but he came to the conclusion that God could be trusted even amidst the most unjust actions done to us. Now his brothers think, well, he's just being nice to us because he wants to see dad, but when dad dies, he'll, he'll unleash the anger. Over in Genesis 50, years later, Jacob is dead. They've lived, in, they've lived as guests of honor in the nation for several years. Again, jo- Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers are, are starting to worry Verse 15 of chapter 50, it says, Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead. They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and actually repay us for all the evil we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, uh, I beg you to please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. Joseph's thinking, guys, I forgave y'all a long time ago. I don't need you to tell me what dad said. I know dad was worried, but I, I forgave y'all a long time ago. It still hurts, and I've still got all these emotions, and I'm in, you know, it's been for 30 years now, but man, it's, I'm still a mess. He weeps. And then his brothers also fell down before his face and said, behold, we are your servants. Again, they're scared to death. They're scared to death, and Joseph is just weeping because he's all emotional. And Joseph, but he makes this statement. Verse 19, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. Not God used it or God worked it, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Here's the decision Joseph made. And again, I'm, I, don't, I know your situation is different. I know, I know, I know. I, I hear all the reasons and the excuses, but here's what Joseph did. He chose to believe that God was greater than the schemes that were done against him. He chose to believe that, yeah, what was done to him was wrong, but God was greater than those wrongs. So much that God worked it all out for the greater good of everyone. And I know Joseph became king. Joseph got rich. I mean, of course it worked out for him. It didn't work out for me. You don't know how it's gonna work out. You don't know, do you? You might wanna give up. You might wanna say it's not gonna work out, but you don't know. Joseph had no idea it was gonna work out this way. But he chose to trust that God had a plan. He saw no reason to hold on to the anger, no matter how justified he was. And as a result of letting that anger go, he was able to live a life of purpose and exceed his wildest dreams. Do you see what Joseph did? He entrusted his anger into God's hands and he let God be the judge, believing that regardless of the evil done against him, God was going to do something good with it all. And you know why Joseph eventually, uh, eventually came down with forgiveness? Because here was his decision— or here's his, his answer. Am I in the place of God? I have no right to hold this over you because I'm not the one that's in charge of you. Yeah, you did it to me, but above me is my God and he hurt just like I hurt and he's got a plan. So when, so when we hold a grudge, when, we, when we're angry, it's like we're saying to God, God, you're not able to take care of this, so I've got to do it for you. The promise of a judgment day. The promise of a judgment day on the horizon lets us know that God will address all wrongs one day. Here's why you can look forward to judgment day. Here's why. You don't know the good that God is working from the bad. And you're not gonna know until you stand before the judge one day. You might wanna know now. You might hope that you know now or sooner than later, but you're not gonna know until judgment day. And you can entrust all of your anger to God knowing that that anger is only gonna get in between you and what God has in store for you. And if you believe he's the judge, like he says he's the judge, then, you, then he is trustworthy. Our decision to forgive reflects our confidence in God as judge. But it also reflects something else. It reflects how you understand the cross. Jesus was judged in our place. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Not only in our place, but he was judged for everyone. He hung there for the sins of the world, for every sinner, small and great. When God's anger was hottest against the world for rejecting Jesus, what did Jesus ask from God? Father, forgive them. Don't judge them. Judge me in their place. Judge me, not them. And in that moment, Isaiah tells us, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, our sin is an offense to God. Our sins, our offense, uh, our sins against others are an offense to God. But what did he do about his anger towards us? At the cross, God made a decision that he would forgive us of the wrongs we've done to him and the wrongs we've done to those that he loves. He canceled our debt. He canceled the debt. Now, not everyone is gonna put their faith in Jesus. Not everyone receives the forgiveness he provided on the cross, but by, and not, by not receiving salvation, a lot of people have continued living their lives in sin. As a result, they continue to do wrongs with their lives. So we're left in this unbroken world with all kinds of unfairness and injustice where people do awful things and say awful things and hurt us in, 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 in awful ways. But the cross is the reason why God does not respond in anger towards them now because he is giving them a chance just like he gives us. The cross offers forgiveness. But one day when this life is over, judgment day will promise vindication. For those not in Christ who have not trusted him, they will stand before God and be sentenced to bear the punishment for their own sin because they did not see Jesus as their substitute. But God's the only one that reserves the right to lay that punishment on anyone we don't get to do that because we've been saved the same way they can be saved so here's the question that we have to ask Is god's solution for sin enough for us if the cross is how you see salvation if how how you receive salvation the cross has to be something else for you the cross has to be the way you find freedom from your anger Because just as God forgave you, God forgave them, and God offers them forgiveness just like he's offered you. You've got to trust that God has a plan. You can trust that he will vindicate you now or somewhere in the future. But until then, you have got to cling to the promise of God. God promises us the cross is our vindication. Until judgment day comes. Either way, we find our vindication through him. We receive his love and forgiveness. We extend it. And though the hurt may linger, we trust that God's way is better. The last verse we read from Ephesians says, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. By choosing to forgive, we are saying that we trust God's plan, the cross behind us, his throne before us. Either way, our vindication is in him. You'll never see the good that God is trying to bring out of the bad if you don't trust him to heal you and help you with your pain and your anger. Your anger will only blind you and you'll never see what God is doing. So can I just ask you today, if, you're, if you've got anger in your heart, real, raw, justifiable anger, will you, look, will you look back at the cross and see what God did about his anger to all of our sin? He canceled the debt. He forgave us. Will you look forward to judgment day? Will you look forward to the throne where Jesus sits, where he promises you, I will vindicate you. I'm working it all out for your good. And if they don't receive my forgiveness, if they don't receive my atonement, I will handle them. But you've got to leave them in my hands because you're not capable of doing my job. Is the cross enough for you? Is the judgment day that God promises in the future, is that enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? That's a question we've got to ask. What we do with our anger reveals whether or not Jesus and his provision are truly enough for us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us today to to wrestle through our emotions, our raw, real, unfiltered emotions. God, we've all dealt with anger. We've all wrestled through anger. We all deal with it right now. We're all angry in some way and in some serious ways today. But God, would you help everybody to realize today that that anger that they have has a hold of them and that anger that they have is not leading them to a better place. And because there is a judgment day ahead of us, We can entrust our anger into your hands. We can forgive those that have done these wrongs to us. And we can have confidence that you are the judge and that you are working all things out to the good. But here's the thing that everyone needs to know. You aren't able to work it out for our good if we're still holding on to that anger. We've got to release it. We've got to cancel the debt so that... Our full confidence is in the cross. Our full confidence is in Jesus so that he can do what only he can do and work all things out for the good. Healing our hearts, hopefully healing or saving that person, but more importantly, leading us to a better place. God, if there's somebody in the house today, they just need to come and talk to you and and give their anger over to you. Would you give them that invitation today? If there's somebody that has just never put their faith in Jesus and they've never trusted him to be their savior, much less to take care of their anger, would you show them that path forward today? Would you help all of us have the faith and trust that you are the good and righteous judge? We ask this in your name. Amen.